take three. The Tips of Leadership <laughs> Podcast, starring Eric. <laughs> Shout out to the podcast audience. Mm. So Matt was Raider. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need to? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was the best? <laughs> Outtakes. Oh my goodness. Oh, who said you can't have fun on a podcast? Welcome, everybody. I hope you got to see that. That was so fun. Welcome to the Tim's of Leadership podcast. My name's Eric Claus, and hey, we have to have a little bit of fun here, and we just decided to keep that in there. So I wanted to pause just a second, and I wanted to say how thankful we are for you joining us today. We have a very special event coming up in February. It's our beginning of the year conference that starts this off. It's in February in beautiful Gatlinburg. It's the Tennessee Ambulance Service Association Conference. We want you to register early because it's probably going to fill up very quickly and sell out. There's going to be information in the show notes, so check that out. I promise you it is going to be time well spent. I'm going to talk to you about today's conversation is within, is a very well-accomplished speaker that we're talking to. His name is Matt Philbrick. And he, shares with, he shared with us recently offline that he came to Tennessee and visited and thought, my goodness, what a wonderful place to visit. And I'm sure it's a great place to live. And we certainly agreed with him. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Matt. So he holds two master's degrees. He has served in this industry for over two decades. Currently, Matt is the manager of a health and wellness program for the nation's largest EMS provider. He also works as an EMS leadership consultant and has been recognized, check this out, as one of the top 40, under 40 EMS leaders in the country. He is a very well accomplished speaker and we are truly blessed by sharing this conversation that we had with all of you. So hang on, everybody. I know this is going to be awesome. <laughs> Matt, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Oh, man, we are excited. Well, let's kind of tell everybody, you're not in Tennessee. You are in Oregon. So I wish we, I was in Tennessee. <laughs> well, I'll be real with you. Well, we, we wish you were here. So we, we planned this for 8.30 in the morning, Tennessee time, not realizing that it's a little bit earlier here in Oregon, so yeah, <laughs> it's still I'm, dark, right? It's, it's, I'm looking outside. The sun is not up. I've, I've, let's see, it's, it's, yeah, we started at 6.30, which means I got up about 5.30 to make kid lunches and pack backpacks and prep breakfast and all that kind of stuff so that you know we could have this conversation uninterrupted. And there's, of course, there's no guarantee that's going to happen, right? That, like. <laughs> the kids could come barging through the door because of some sort of impending crisis. But the the excitement in my house this morning is, you know, this, we're recording this around Christmas time, but the elf on the shelf has been, you know, very active in our house. And so that's a new tradition for our family this year. My kids are young enough where they still get very excited about that. And so last night, the elf found itself into a bathroom and got into toilet paper. And and that's, the, the, the house is a buzz this morning. And all this is happening, of course, like before I've had a sip of coffee. So as we're talking, <laughs> you know, you know, an hour and a half, almost two hours into my morning, I have had about, you know, one sip of coffee just as we're starting. Of course, it's it's, it's EMS coffee. You can stand a fork up in it. <laughs> I remember the elf in the shelf days. I think it's been a while, but I think ours found itself in the refrigerator one time. So yeah, it was a, a little bit frosty, but good. The, yeah, it's going to find <laughs> itself in the garbage if it's too much more work. It's good times, man. We'll embrace those because the time goes very, very fast. So we appreciate your time, Matt. I am so excited to talk to you. And I know that so that you have so much this year. And I'm going to just kind of jump right in into, and I read your, your bio when we started the podcast, but I want to kind of talk a little bit about 
what you currently do. You know, you have a a lot of experience. You work for, you know, one of the largest EMS providers and you do event response and crisis resource management and wellness outreach. Unpack this for us, man. So interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting job. It's it's certainly one of those things that I think when I started my career, I wasn't aware existed and honestly didn't exist. But it's certainly a reflection of of the times that we live in and the the wants, needs, and requests of our industry. So I work as a the manager of a program that for for the nation's largest EMS provider, ground and fixed wing, and we do a lot of work with education surrounding mental health and wellness with leadership collaboration with other leaders within the organization, guiding them through arguably some of the most stressful events of their careers and their team's, you know, careers. And it it has many different faces. It takes me all over the United States for, for crisis and catastrophic event response. We work with all sorts of different people. There's a, a cultural competency component. So, you know, I, I, I'm someone from from the West Coast, I've lived in California and Oregon my entire adult life. Uh, but I know that there's some unique nuances for someone that lives in Tennessee. Uh, and yeah. you don't know that until you're sitting there and breathing the air and talking to people and looking at them face to face. And so that's that's kind of one of the really interesting parts of the job is is building on that that cultural competency, which is which is fun. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting job and it's it's kind of the the crux of my career in the sense that you know, I always leaned into helping others and I found a real passion for helping people that are putting the uniform on, having been one of those people myself. And I kind of love the idea of of helping the helpers. That's incredible work. And I know it's rewarding and adds so much value to everybody and working with teams. And that's that's true leadership right there. And so it's so exciting to hear about it. And a lot of Matt, stress eating too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And and coffee drinking. We all have those maladaptive coping mechanisms. Indeed, we do. Matt, what was your first leadership role? Can you take us back? I know you've been doing this for over two decades. You have two master's degrees, like you're so educated. But I, I want to go back to the beginning and where it started for you. Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to a one of your previous episodes with with Phil Sanderson, and he had mentioned he was voted his paramedic class president. And I had this moment of like, oh, I was also, and I had completely blocked that out of my memory for whatever, you know, trauma response I was having, making it through paramedic school. I had completely forgotten about that. So that may be the first time, you know, in a democratic process where people voted me in. And I think what it was is, you know, I was, I think I was 22 years old at the time. And I think I had some 22-year-old colleagues that really thought it would be fun to watch me have close personal conversations with the instructor. So, so I, 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 I got to thank you for that, Eric, because it, it kind of shocked me as I was re-listening to that, that episode. Uh, I'll say my first kind of true, you know, unofficial leadership role started working in the back of an ambulance. So I started my career working, you know, 911. BLS ground and then ALS ground and then transitioned uh, into flight and spent spent most of my 20s doing that. And there's we kind of overlook it, I think, as an industry, but there's this incredible forced leadership that comes with meeting a stranger, building a rapport in 20 seconds or less, convincing them to let you poke them with sharp things, sometimes do invasive procedures, you know, in the back of a moving vehicle or in a pressurized tube, you know, 29,000 feet in the air. And you have to build that trust and you have to lead them, you have to inspire them to allow you to do all those things. And you don't realize that in the moment. And so that's, that's I think, if you told 21-year-old Matt, hey, you're a leader, I would, I would have some choice words to tell you that you were wrong in true paramedic fashion. But I think that's kind of the, the unofficial first leadership role for most of us. The the first official role I had, I was, I remember it vividly. I was 29 years old and I had applied for an education supervisor type position. So at some agencies is clinical education specialist at the, the nonprofit ambulance company that I was working at. We called it the, the education supervisor. 
And I was not selected for the position, but I was pulled into an office with the, the COO and the CEO. And they said, hey, you're not a good fit for that position, but we want you to do this other job. It's called the medical operations manager. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I don't really know what that job is. I don't have experience. I mean, I was a frontline provider at the time, well, working on our flight team. And they said, hey, it's great. It's wonderful. You get to be home every night. You don't have to work night shift anymore. You get to be home with your family. And my wife at the time was like eight and a half months pregnant. You got a new but, kid. You're going to yeah. be there for all those wonderful moments. You know, the the pay is better. The, and I had this kind of this bill of sale of all these really wonderful things. And then I just jumped into it with both feet. So I, I jo- often joke around and I say, oh, I had this temporary lapse in judgment and I accepted the position as an operations manager. But I went from, you know, on a Friday, putting a flight suit on, climbing into aircraft, to Monday being the boss, quote unquote, the boss of 100 plus people. And so I was put in this role of, hey, you're the manager and you have supervisors that work for you. And some of these supervisors have more time in EMS than you have on this planet. And so there's this forced kind of growth, if you will. And it was, there was a lot of growing pains, if I'm being honest with you, a lot of screwing up, but it was, hey, you're now in this thing now and there's no turning back. And, and that was made abundantly clear to me. So I'll, 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 to answer your question, it, it started with, with that. And years later, it's funny, like I, I went back and I asked the two people that offered me the job, and I don't know if they were joking or not, but I asked them, you know, why did you choose me? And they go, oh, we just wanted a millennial in the office because we don't really know how you guys think. And we wanted to get someone on the inside that could explain all of it to us. And it's so funny. I mean, that was, you know, gosh, almost 10 years ago. Now it's, we got to get a 20 something. We don't know what a TikTok is or, you know, (laughs) what does Riz mean? You're like, well, hold on, I'll explain it to you. That is very interesting how you say that. And for you to be able to get that feedback, I want to, I want to go back to the beginning statement because you said something that I want to park and just sort of pause and, and ask you to explain a little bit more. But you mentioned that your first role in leadership actually came as being a provider, but that is not what is taught. Most providers, at least in the beginning of the career, they don't see themselves as leaders. But it is huge. So take us through that journey on when you realize, my goodness, I'm taking care of patients. I am a leader. So you're right. I don't think if you sit people down, you sit our 20-somethings or our 30-somethings that are, are the emerging workforce, and you say, hey, congratulations, you've just gone through EMT paramedic or nursing school. You're now a leader. They're going to, you know, they're cue the nystagmus, right? Like, yeah. The, there's, there's a... a a dramatic eye roll that comes with that statement. But if you unpack the kind of the true definition of leadership, which is, you know, leadership is the art and science of using influence to guide people in a direction. That could be a positive direction. And we have those positive leaders that we have built trust. And they do that through this, this wonderful toolkit of, of empathy and emotional intelligence and fostering employee engagement. Or you could take them in a negative direction, and we call those toxic leaders. And, and that's more of a feeling, right? We feel when we have a toxic leader, we have that visceral, you know, kind of emotional response to, uh, to those really, those, those bad leaders. If you say to someone, hey, you're, you're going to use your skill set to influence someone down a, a healthcare path or a patient care path or a care plan, whatever terminology you want to use, that's truly the definition of leadership. And we do that through this, this toolkit. So, you know, oftentimes I think of, you know, calming down the, the psych patient, right? Or the, mm-hmm. the, the patient that you have that is having maybe emerging psychosis or they're, they're having some sort of mental health crisis. And maybe, you know, the first tool in the toolkit is that slow, methodical, clear, calming communication that just draws them into that place where they just feel a little bit better. No, I didn't do anything special there. I slowed my voice down. I had downward inflection at the end of every sentence. I talked calmly. You know, we're on video now, but I made direct eye contact with you. And if I was doing all that in the back of an ambulance, I'm talking down a patient. and I'm guiding them in a direction of, 
let's let's embrace that we're trans getting transported to the hospital. Let's embrace that I'm here to help you. You're guiding them in a particular direction. So by definition, you're a leader. And you know, the parallels between that and all the other things that show up in our career, we we see that in, you know, family, we see that in our personal relationships. I mean, all leadership permeates everything that we do. Yeah. And it's not a title. I mean, I've heard this, I think, on every podcast from you that I've listened to. It's not a title. And and I think we're we're clear on that. It's the yeah. title does not the leader make. Yeah. So it's I think the the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we really get to kind of understand what true leadership is. Matt, what was the experience that you had that ignited your passion for leadership? Because I can like feel it through the camera about your passion about this this industry. What was that experience for you that just lit you on fire? So it's so funny because so if you're listening to this, yeah, I imagine that you probably think this feels and sounds like you know Matt and Eric having a, a cup of coffee at a diner, and you just get to listen to it. And what you might be shocked to learn is that there's a little bit of a pre-interview process, and and Eric brings a couple questions to me, and this was the question that that no joke, I lost sleep over. And I was like, I have to pin it down to an experience. I have to pin it down to a person. And and I think I did that. And so, you know, the the experience that I had for most of my EMS career up until this point was, you know, there's this immense amount of sacrifice that's going to be required from you. You're going to get fat. You're going to get depressed. You're going to you know, your relationships are going to suffer. Actually, at one point, I, you know, in the very beginning of kind of my paramedic training, one of the lab instructors at my paramedic school, you know, called everyone in the room and said, okay, you know, raise your hand if you have a, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, or significant other. And of course, you know, I was 21 years old at the time. I raised my hand and I'm like, yeah, who's bad? I got a girlfriend. All right. And, and then very abruptly, they said, well, you won't for long. And it kind of set the tone that I had heard up until that point, which is, if you're going to do this thing, be prepared to sacrifice everything else in your life. And the first person I met that, you know, called that into question was an FTO that I had relatively early in my career. So I had, I had started working as a 911 paramedic at a new agency and I had a, an FTO. Her name was Antoinette. And she kind of pulled me aside, you know, after the first week and I was stressed out. It was a new job. I was nervous. It was a new protocol, an expanded scope here in the state of Oregon. It was kind of more of an expanded scope than what I had previously been used to. So I'm learning new medications and new procedures and new techniques. A lot more autonomy as a care provider. I was very nervous and she just pulled me aside and she's like, listen, we hired you for a reason. We already like you. You just have to meet the minimum requirements and this job is going to be awesome. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to be mean to you. I want to be your friend. I like spending time with you. So let's just try and have some fun. And that moment in itself flipped my EMS world on its head because it was the first time in my career that someone was like, this job can be a whole heck of a lot of fun if you allow it. And I've, I, I haven't looked back since like that yeah. phrase, that statement, that experience was, was incredibly impactful. And, and this is, you know, this is an FTO. I mean, I, I've talked to her about that moment in the past and she doesn't remember it. Yeah, she barely remembers me being a trainee. But it was it was certainly for me one of those life changing moments that that in reflection I was like yeah that was the point that was it. Matt, I want to go back though to the comment that your instructor made to you about losing your girlfriend, and I have a an experience when I was in paramedic school in eighty nine. I graduated in nineteen ninety. That's a long time ago, but our paramedic instructor told us to look to the person on your left and look to the person on your right and they won't be here. And it was true. They weren't. One, you know, I think it was a 75% attrition rate. So we only graduated with a few. It was, it was certainly a different time. But I want to ask you, Matt, this, this is something I don't want to lose on because you got discouraged by someone of influence that had a lot of power. How did that make you feel when that comment was said to you. So it's it's interesting because I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about feelings and feelings are a major driver of a lot of the work that we do. You know that that limbic system, the amygdala plays this 
incredible role in all things in our lives. And we all, we all want to think we're logical beings, but we're not. And the major life changes, career changes, all have these intense senses of feeling. So when you say, you know, what was your feeling in that moment? Not knowing that there's other ways to respond. And, you know, at, at the time I was, like I said, I was 21 years. I was in my early 20s. My brain was not fully developed. My priorities as a human being were not really aligned. I honestly, at the time, I, all of my possessions could fit into my, you know, 2005 Ford Ranger. I was living at a fire station. Like there's, there's this kind of frame of where I was in my life. And someone comes to you and goes, Hey, this thing that you're getting into that you're going to spend the next year and a half fully committing to, it, you have to give up everything else in your life. And it sparked a sense of terror. You know, I'd like to say that I was mature enough to be like, oh, that's not really the case. You know, this is this is one of the best careers on the planet. And you don't really get it. And I get it. But that's not the case. I walked out of that conversation terrified. Terrified that I made it a huge mistake. Terrified that I wasn't cut out for the position. And this intense sense of fear set in for for quite a while that I think... Ultimately, if I look back on my experience in paramedic school, it, it tainted what I could have learned, what I could have experienced, because there was this, this overwhelming sense of like, you're not cut out for it. Maybe you're not the person that wants to completely sacrifice everything in your life to do this job. Now, by the way, when I got out of paramedic school, I went into it making $8.50 an hour. This is in the, the kind of early 2000s. I got out of it as a paramedic making $9.50 an hour. So you're saying, hey, you're going to go through this really horrible experience. You're going to sacrifice all this kind of stuff for $1 more per hour. Oh, and by the way, good luck finding a job. Yeah. So so it it sparked this intense sense of fear, which I think is incredibly common with with toxic leaders. That's that's yeah. how they maintain that power and control over you. So Matt, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ask you this because the, I don't want to lose this. And I didn't think we would go here, but there's so much to unpack as that almost frustrates me to a degree because I think that is the culture of some, and I'm going to make this personal for me. If when I went to nursing school and it was brutal, it was absolutely brutal to go through that. It was three years of intense training that I was working partially full-time. If someone would have said that to me, I had already had two kids in a career and I just want to share with everybody that is listening to this is that your words have incredible power. They have the power to lift or destroy. And I just don't want to lose that as in anybody that is mentoring someone is, wow, just be very careful. It's a whole lot better to encourage someone and to say, hey, listen, I just want to let you know there's going to be some sacrifice. You're going to have to come up with a plan. It's going to be tougher than you think. You can do it versus coming in with a negative, you know, voice and then immediately creating fear, which ultimately distracts you from doing your best. So I appreciate you sharing that. And there's not many things that fire me up, but when when leaders use words like that and it and it truly can break somebody down is is not good. And it just doesn't happen in the EMS industry. It happens in all industries. And uh, I, this, this is a good transition, Matt, that I want to ask you is because you had mentioned that the EMS industry is the best industry to go into. And I agree with you to the point that my son, many of you have heard his voice on this podcast before. His name's Chris. He's an EMT. He's a freshman in college. And so I agree that the EMS industry is is heading in the direction I've never seen it go before in a positive way with things like we're doing. But some would disagree and say, this is not the best industry. But I want to unpack this a little bit on why you feel the way that you do about this being the best industry, because I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, so anyone that knows me knows that I feel that statement on a visceral level is truly it's in my soul it's in my bones i i i joke that ems is is in my blood you know i married a paramedic my son was born during ems week my wife's water broke at our ems week barbecue 
it, it EMS permeates all things in my life in a really positive way. And and I think that it it certainly can do that with everyone. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean I've never run a bad call. That doesn't mean I've never had a bad boss. That doesn't mean I haven't been held over or had to work holidays or night shift or mandatory or, you know, all the stuff that comes with it. But the sum of my experience, if I look back at the entire journey, it has this upward trajectory. And oftentimes, you know, when I work with EMS providers, when I work with EMS leaders, they tend to think that they have this downward trajectory or they're supposed to have this downward trajectory towards burnout, compassion fatigue, dissatisfaction with the role, feeling trapped and all of those things. And I think the true measure of someone who enjoys the work that they do is exactly what you described with your son. So, so, and I want to, I want to speak to that here in a sec, but I'll, when I say that EMS is the best industry, we get anyone in this role. And, and I, I say EMS or I say emergency responder, and I mean everyone doing it. So dispatch, firefighter, law enforcement, EMT, paramedic, flight nurse, flight medic, RT, whoever puts the boots on, zips the uniform up, whatever that looks like, they have this built-in incredible sense of adventure. They have this, this sense of identity that you have intrinsic meaning and value built into the role that you have. So we get to drive fast in the big white truck at, at a baseline. We get to go fast in the helicopter or airplane. We get complex patients. We get to go home smelling like jet fuel. We have cool uniforms that we get to wear. For my flight colleagues out there that might be listening to this, you get to sleep in an FBO, you know, and, and talk shop with pilots and talk about minimums. And you just, you sound cool. And then when you go one layer a little bit below that, the meaning and value that comes with the role, that is the, the sustainable part of the job, is you get this incredible service to others. And so there's this subsect of the population, this, these kind of uh, work with a psychologist by the name of Dr. John Becknell. He's an, he works with EMS agencies across the United States. He calls it the, the warrior rescuer archetype. And for me, that, that sounds wonderful to repeat in a conversation. If you want to sound smart, I say it's the people that run towards danger compared to the people that run away from danger. And so if you look at the footage of the, the October 1 event in Las Vegas, the cell phone footage and things like that, you can see there are there's this this group of people that are running towards injured consort goers and then there's everyone else 90% running away and and they didn't show up to work that day but it is so ingrained in their soul that sense of service to others that under any circumstance they're going to to lean into that and they're going to support they're going to help people Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers used to call it the helpers. Look for the helpers, right? Mm -hmm. And and that sense that that sense of helping provides incredible meaning. And and meaning is one of those things that everyone wants in the work that they do. And and I'll tell you right now, like if you install auto glass for a living, you're not the person at every party that they go, oh my gosh, tell me what's the worst thing you've ever seen? You know, what's, tell me about your job. What is it like to be a paramedic? What's it like to run 911 calls? And of course, you know, the, me being, a, you know, be giving a smart aleck remark when they go, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? You go, oh, my paycheck. And that's typically how I get out of those conversations. <laughs> but people have a sense of excitement about the work that we do and we take that for granted. And then even deeper than that, I'll take it one level deeper, we get to bear witness to suffering of others. And what an incredible experience. Uh, cultures throughout time have celebrated the moment of death. And we have that built into the work that we do. There's, there's all kinds of these really elaborate death rituals or funeral rituals or, or all the stuff that kind of goes into societies and cultures in general. And that's a Tuesday for us. And what an incredible experience to be able to be there with someone at the end, to be able to support the survivors and guide them through in a healthy way. Like that is something that I think most of us take for granted. But what an incredible experience. To me, that is the real, that's true meaning and value. That is not something that the rest of society gets to experience. 
And so, yeah, we have this, you know, the rival football, the high school football team mentality with other EMS agencies or hospital systems or things like that. But we have this really special thing that binds all of us together. And it's, it's that. It's all, it's all three of those things. Yeah, I love that. Love that answer. This is a transition, and you had mentioned it, is you mentioned suffering. And what comes to my mind when you say that is a book. It's an incredible book. It's an intense book that is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. So I want you to talk about that. Yeah, so if you're not, if you're not familiar with the book, I think it's appeared on every top 10 books of all time list that's ever been published. It's about 150, 160 pages long. You could get through it in an afternoon. It's a heavy read, right? It's, it, I, I will so. say it is an intense story of a man, Viktor Frankl, and his experiences during the Holocaust. And so if, yeah. if you're not familiar, and I'll just give a, a quick synopsis to the, the folks listening. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Austria. Because of the work that he was doing as a psychiatrist, he was granted amnesty to the United States in the late 1930s before the Nazi invasion of, of Austria. And he declined it. He declined it for several reasons because his family was not granted amnesty. So he didn't want to leave his aging parents to almost certain death. And so he decided to decline it and stay in Austria with his family. So, so he basically committed himself to a, a death sentence, not knowing what was going to happen, but, but he made that decision. And his life's work surrounded this idea of logotherapy. And it's not important to remember that, but basically logotherapy was this idea that you are the sum of your experiences and you control your reaction to the stimulus of those experiences. And so there's this little space between stimulus and response where something maybe gets you fired up or whatever sparks a sense of anger, some emotional or physical response, and you control that space in the middle before you actually react. And no matter what, no one can take that away from you. So that's what his life work was, was surrounding. We're standing on the at the, the train platform in, in Auschwitz, and an officer takes his life work, drags his family away from him, throws his life work on the ground, his manuscript on the ground, never to be seen again. And then he spent several years in multiple different concentration camps only then to emerge at the end of the war and then continue his work moving forward. And so the, the name of the book is Man's Search for Meaning. And what Frankel found in those experiences is that the people that survived, the people that survived arguably the, you know, one of the greatest atrocities in, in human history were the ones that never lost their sense of meaning. And they, the way they maintained that is really embracing, you know, all this really bad stuff can happen to me that's way out of my control. Uh, I, I don't control, you know, if a guard wakes me up in the middle of the night, I don't control if I get beaten. I don't get control if I eat today. I don't get to say, no, I'm not working today. There's all these things I don't control. But the one thing that I control that they can never take away from me is my sense of agency, which is, which, and, and more specifically, my ability to control my reaction to all this stuff that I don't control. And so people that are really, you know, I'm on this, this lifelong search to find EMS providers that, you know, work 20, 30, 40 years in the industry and they come out of it happy and they say, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And so, so there's, there's, that's, those are the people I like meeting and I like talking to. And well, there's talking to one of them now, Matt. Well, exactly. <laughs> and so, so I often talk to folks about this idea of, is this job? So I, I start with some basic questions. Is this job still fun? Yes or no? Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. Okay. Well, over time, is this job adding more to your life or taking away more from your life? Maybe a little bit. It's, I was taking a lot. I had to work a lot over to it. You know, and then I, then I ask it, you know, is EMS making you a better person? And then they sit and they think and they go, I don't know, maybe. And I go, well, what would your, your spouse say? What would your kids say? Are your kids walking around saying, boy, I'm really glad dad was a paramedic. I'm really glad dad was a manager. You know, I, if you're not permeating and putting off, you know, this is, sorry, this is millennial Matt speaking. If you're not putting off that vibe of, I love this thing and it's making my life better, everyone else in your life is going to pick up on that. And then really the, 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 the heavy hitter question I ask is, would you recommend this job 
to a family member, so someone that you truly care about, would you be able to look your kids in the eye and be like, hey, you should absolutely be a firefighter. You should absolutely be a paramedic. You should absolutely get into management. You should absolutely be a leader. And the goal is to be able to say, yeah, you want to be able to say, I love this job so much. This has added so much value to my life. Was it easy? No. Did it hurt? Yeah. There's this quote that I'm a a fan of the, the Stoics and the Stoic philosophy. There's this quote, I think by Seneca, but of course, don't quote, don't quote me on the quote I'm about to say is, you know, a a gem cannot be polished without friction, nor, you know, and he says, nor a man without, without trials and tribulations. And basically the point of the quote is the hard stuff makes you the better person. The the struggles and the stress, you're going to get through them. They're going to be tough, but it makes you a stronger person coming out of it. So can your kids look at you and be like, yeah, that was tough. But dad's a really good guy. He's a good dad. He's a better person because of the work he did. Let me ask you a question about this, Matt. Yeah, Yeah, please. Go go ahead. So not not to interrupt, but I don't don't lose this moment. So you say friction and polishing the stone or the gem. But let's go to a very basic level. So let's say that I am the provider and I am facing a bad challenge. Like I am in a stress overload. I may even have the beginnings of post-traumatic stress. I am burned out. My family is coming apart. This stress has got the best of me. So what we're saying is there's still a chance. There is still hope. So I'm using the dramatic example. But would you say to me, especially in your role, because you have a lot of experience, but we're talking about the upsides to this. But what about the provider that is feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this in five years. What recommendations can you give to transition that provider that really does feel like they're stuck and they can't do it long term? How do they make the transition out of that to become a better version of themselves to advance? So so I'll give you uh, I'll give you the answer or what I think the research both empirical and anecdotal says to that. But I'll give even a a more drilled down example of really how EMS improves our lives without us even knowing it. So so I often ask providers, hey, what's the worst call you could possibly run? And I go, pediatric arrest. You're like, got it. So let's say you run that pediatric arrest call. Whether the patient survives or not, you have this intense experience. And there's all these people on the call And everyone has their own unique experience. Some might be walking away saying that was the best call of my life. I performed the way I was supposed to perform. All of that training I've done, I've, I, you know, my, the PALS algorithm or my hand heavy algorithm, whatever it is, I nailed that. And then you have kind of what we think we more commonly we see or we expect to see is people going, that was the worst call of my life. And so I asked them, I said, okay, in that moment, if that's the worst call in your life, do you go home and do you hug your kids just a little bit tighter that day? So I'll ask you, Eric, when you ran those calls, when you had those those bad calls, did you go home to your son and did you hug him just a little bit harder? So the answer is yes. And it and I'm gonna I'm gonna take you back a, a little bit more because I'm gonna I, I don't want to lose the moment. So let's say that my first pediatric arrest after my daughter was born. Okay. Devastating, right? Just completely freaked me out. So I go back home and I pick her up and I'm a mess, right? So I did. So it impacted me and it made a difference. And yes, it, it made me appreciate them more. On the contrary, it caused an immense amount of fear too. So it was a double-edged sword for me. Yeah, so so over time, as you run those calls and as your kids are toddlers and 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 then adolescents and as they grow, if you're anything like the rest of the industry, you go home and you're super dad, right? You're the yeah, most yeah. patient. Your kids get a pass on literally everything. You're laying on the floor, you're playing Barbies or G.I. Mm-hmm. Joe's or or whatever it is, and you are fully focused on your kids. Now I love that you use the analogy of a double-edged sword because I think of it this way. You just had this really intense experience, but you're not telling your kids you had that intense experience. All they know is that dad came home and man, he was throwing love at us. 
And their kids walked away from that experience with a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you. So arguably, if you didn't have that pediatric arrest on that call, on that day, you would have gone home business as usual. Hey, dad's home. All right. All right. Go do your homework. Go do this. Go do that. No, no, we're not staying up late tonight. No, we're not watching TV tonight. It's a school night, whatever. You impacted maybe ever so slightly. Maybe you just turned the dial ever so slightly, but you impacted kind of the, the love quotient, the love metric with your kids and you deepened that relationship. So yes, you ran a horrible call that impacted you. But that downstream effect is that you strengthen the relationship with your kids without even knowing it. And so when you say, hey, EMS, you know, I, I, we had these traumatic events, every single one of these events and experiences has some sort of a downstream impact. Now, where we start to worry is what you just started talking about, which is when we start developing the psychopathology of post-traumatic stress injury mm -hmm. and, and for for those of you that aren't familiar with that, the signs and symptoms that go with, with stress injury formation, they could be insomnia, they could be eating too much, eating too little, increasing in maladaptive coping mechanisms. So those are the drugs, the alcohol, uh, the unhealthy relationships, things like that. When you maintain that symptomology, when you have intrusive thoughts, when you have distracting thoughts, when it's impacting the quality of your, quality of your life and you maintain those symptoms for 30 days or more, and a psychologist or a psychiatrist diagnoses you, that's kind of the, the, the key point there, then you have you know, what's diagnosed as post-traumatic stress injury. It is an injury. We recover from injuries the same way you have a back injury and you can rehab it and you can get better or shoulder injury or whatever. The same thing is true with, with stress injury. So it's not, a, it's not a death sentence. It's not a career-ending diagnosis. It's just something that you need to get treatment for. We often find that when we you know, and that can happen from a couple different ways, but we often find that when that goes unmitigated and, and people don't mitigate that stress injury formation, that's when they kind of go down the path of, of exactly what you're talking about. And so there's, there's a lot that can be done. Now, I, I certainly fall into the camp of, of anyone that brings you a, you know, six step proprietary algorithm or app that you have to download or wellness protocol where you have to ice bath for three hours every morning and then gratitude journal for an hour after that and then spend 45 minutes in nature and then meditate or whatever. If they give you such a prescriptive measure for wellness, the, the EMS provider red flag radar should be going up. What I'll tell you is that the best wellness practice that you can do is the one that you're actually going to do. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, there's this emerging body of research that shows that goat yoga is one of the most effective ways to reduce stress injury formation, and you're like, there is no scenario where I'm climbing around on the floor with some goats, unless I really want to, and I'm a goat, I'm a goat person, apparently. No, I, I, that sounds fun to me. But if someone comes to you and says, that's the only path to wellness and surviving this industry, the red flag should be going up. What I'll say is it's even more simple than that. And, and this is not something that you can put into an app. This is not something that you can sell. And so it kind of, it shakes up that kind of EMS wellness industry a little bit. And it's this idea of attention. And so, again, I'll give you a, a stoic quote. Epictetus says, you are what you give your attention to. So if we want to be healthy, happy EMS providers, we have to spend some time giving our attention to that. If we want to be good leaders, and this is a leadership podcast, we have to give our attention to being a good leader. Now, what does that look like? There's all these things that can be done. You could read a book. You could listen to a podcast. Ideally, you're listening to this podcast week by week, and you're subscribing. You're smashing that like button and the subscribe button in whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It could just be something as simple as having conversations with other leaders about what's your style? like, Or, hey, I, I ran into this scenario. Did I do this the right way? Talking to people that are your followers, like every leader has to have some sort of followership. Are you building a sense of followership? So can you talk to people and be like, hey, I made this decision. How'd that land with you? Or I had this conversation. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Tell me a little bit more about, but you know, how I did and being open to that. So, so the idea of giving your attention to this practice is really the secret sauce. 
Is it easy? No, it, it is. And there is no shortage of things that grab our attention. We carry this supercomputer in our pocket, right? And, and it is easy to just log in and start doom scrolling on the social media platform du jour or get into text conversations or just distract ourselves. But the idea of really committing yourself to the to attention, and really, if you want to get very specific, the attention on the things that we can control and the good things that we can control. You know, if we if we want to hunt the good and it's an active process, you sometimes have to really search for that good. That's the true secret sauce of of EMS providers that are navigating this career and saying, hell yeah, I wouldn't change anything. I would do this yeah. all over again. That's great advice. And that was, you answered the question that I was going to ask you, but everybody, just to, to go back with what Matt was saying, he gave you some incredible advice, If regardless of what position you're in, for emerging leaders or experienced leaders. And just be very intentional about that. And Matt, man, I cannot believe, we're like 45 minutes into this. And it's been incredible. I want to spend like two or three hours more because you have dove into so many things that I want to ask you about. But here's the last question is, I want you to think back to advice that you received that was the best leadership advice that you ever received. And you're like, man, I got it. What is it? It may be something recently, but can you narrow it down to one thing and why? So what I'm hearing you say is I need to answer one question, but make it last at least two more hours. Three more hours <laughs> and yes, one question. <laughs> Let me take a deep breath. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. It It is, it is simple advice, but it's meaningful advice and it's kind of impacted me in all, all various different forms. And so I actually heard this advice as I started getting into the consulting world and i found that this is this is really impactful leadership advice as well and it is meet people where they're at we often think that you know we're on this journey and everyone else is learning and and growing at the same rate or same pace that we are so you know for me i'm i'm 39 years old arguably halfway through my career i'm about 20 years in i'd like to work in ems for another 20 years and and I often look at people that are, you know, my age or in positions similar to me. Sometimes maybe they have more experience in the field than I do. And I think that they are at where I'm at. And I'm often disappointed to find out that they're either further along in the journey or they're not as far in the journey. And so I keep reminding myself that I need to meet them where they're at, not where I'm at. And that's incredibly challenging if i'm if i'm just being honest with you because you'll read a book that's really exciting so i'm a i'm a big fan of you know simon senek and brene brown and emerald and maxwell and these these authors that really permeate leadership there's so many incredible takeaways from 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 great authors out there and i think oh did you you know did you Let's talk about kindness, you know, Brene Brown's kind truth versus nice truth. And they're like, what? You, did you just say the word kind in the context of EMS? There is no scenario where I have that conversation with you. And you're like, ah. Oh. And there's this kind of sense of almost disappointment of like, boy, I wish we could just sit down and have a conversation surrounding that. And I, and I go back to that advice, which is I just need to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And it's challenging. It's yeah. not easy, but it's certainly one of those things that I think frames up the experience in a positive way. Because it's a good reminder. If I'm if I'm it further is. along in the journey, then I get to go back and I get to kind of show that I've mastered the basics. And if I'm talking to someone with more experience than me, then what an incredible opportunity to just, hey, let me ask you some questions. Let me pick your brain. What's the the leadership topic that's really exciting you right now? Mm -hmm. uh, and they might be like, hey, I just heard this thing from, you know, Andrew Huberman on his podcast. Oh, I'd love to. Okay, let me, let me, and he's a neuroscientist, if you're not familiar. I want to check him out, you know. And so it, it's approaching all of those conversations with a sense of curiosity. Yeah. And it, really trying to figure out where people are at and then meet them there is, is the real secret sauce, I think. 
You're, that's a great analogy, and I'm going to break it down. So I'm looking at what you just said as in a mentoring almost. Meet people where they are, and you're inspired by those people. I want to share with everybody that is on here, regardless of your position in leadership, to expand on what Matt's saying is meeting people where they are. So let's say that you're a leader and you're coaching someone up. That is real connection. That is real inspiration. That is where you gain trust. But I'm going to break this down even further, is that when you meet people where they are and they're dealing with a challenge and you're in a leadership role and you have influence over them, meeting people where they are is truly putting the lens on that they are wearing. We need to view the problem and the challenge coming from them, not from you because they're the ones that are potentially struggling. And you being able to be an effective leader is going down to wherever they are. And if you have kids, it's the same thing. Is that, I'll use an example with our kids often in college, where they may have an issue, and it's not an issue to us, but it's a real issue to them because they've never dealt with that before. So we're putting the lens and the glasses that they're wearing on and viewing it from them and then be able to coach them and inspire them along the way. So the meeting people where they are, I think is so important and you can do it from so many levels. And Matt, I I just want to share with you on behalf of Timsa, this was incredible. We are so grateful that you shared this time with us today. I cannot believe the time went so fast. There's so many more questions that uh, I would want to ask you, but you have definitely enriched our lives and gave us a lot to to think about and really to kind of plan and and think about as we kind of start the year of 2024. So I wanted to thank you so much for adding value to us today. Thanks, it was my pleasure. I was happy to be here. I hope I said all the right things. Well, you did and we'll let you get back to your day and maybe you can enjoy the sunrise. So Matt, thanks again, man. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Eric, take care.